Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers. However, I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello everybody, welcome to a very special episode of British Murders. I am your host, Stu, and joining me today is my friend, Christian, who is the tallest man in the world at six foot, <laughs> six foot nine. Every time I introduce him, I say that. Christian and I have been friends for a good few years now, met at a music festival. He's the smartest guy I know, but he's also the one with the least amount of common sense, which is quite a unique combination. Thank you very much. I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. Yeah, he's also from Southern England, and I tend to have a habit of going into a Southern accent when I speak to Christian. For some reason, as soon as I see him, it's, hello, boy. I don't know why that is. It just reminds me of the good old days at Creamfields. So you have a master's degree in what? Creative writing. Creative writing. Yeah. And you are an aspiring author who is in the middle. Well, you've finished the lion's share of your first ever novel. How's that going? Yeah, it's been quite an intense experience, actually, because this is the first novel that I've really put my weight behind and stuck at, stuck through it. Because there's this thing, especially with writers, it's kind of getting past the dreaded, uh, fir- the dreaded third, I'd say, around the third way through. A lot of authors give up. And this is the first novel, I'm, I'm, I'd say, about 60% through. And yeah, I'm, the finish is on the horizon. Have you got a planned date when it's due to be finished? Have you got a target to aim towards? It's really difficult, actually, because of my job as a teacher, the only time I actually get to write properly is during my holidays. So if I have a really productive holiday, then hopefully I'll get it finished within the next year. But, you know, depending on how the the next few months go, we'll see. I don't think I'm going to stick to any sort of time date. Yeah. I mean, being a teacher, you're off every other week, so you should probably get it finished in (laughs) six months, I would have thought, if you take it seriously. (laughs) You know what? 13 weeks holiday is just not enough. That is scandalous, that. I know there's definitely some North American listeners who are thinking, we get two weeks and you're getting 13 and it's not enough for you. Bless your cotton socks. <laughs> I have read a few drafts of your book and I, it's really great. It's like a, what, what would you call it, a crime thriller? Yeah, so basically it's a crime thriller set in the backdrop of the Shropshire Hills. So for those listeners that aren't familiar with Shropshire, it's basically um, a county located in the West Midlands of England and just on the border of Wales. And my uh, crime fiction is basically a serial killer crime fiction. And it's about a a deranged killer who's wreaking havoc in quite a sleepy, sleepy town where they haven't really experienced any sort of evil like that before. And it's following a junior detective who's been given this case and is struggling immensely with it. And yeah, I go quite a lot into the uh, psychology of the serial killer. Because one thing that I'd say that you and I both share a common curiosity for um, is the morbidity and like the psychology of a serial killer. So when you when you invited me onto this podcast, I I was absolutely overjoyed because I thought, oh, this would be great and give me a chance to come away from the novel and write some nonfiction and uh, enjoy reading about all the messed up stuff people do. Yeah. So what we're kind of doing for this episode is 
it, this is kind of an interval episode between seasons two and three, because for season three, I'm doing a lot of changes in that I'm going to try and start videoing my episodes. And it, there's a bit of prep that I want to put into that to make sure it sort of launches where I want it to launch. So there's going to be a few episodes between season two and three. We're already there now when this airs. And Christian is going to tell me and you, the listener, a true crime story. It's a British one. And it's about Patrick David Mackay. Now, we went through a list of serial killers together because that's just what we do. And we picked one that I think neither of us had heard of, first and foremost. But also, since you've had this, because I have a list on my phone of people I would cover on my show. Mm -hmm. And since you've picked Patrick David Mackay, I haven't looked at anything to do with this guy. I know nothing about him. Oh, so this will all be new to you? It's all brand new to me. So I'll be reacting to this live. Uh, well, live as in now, not when it airs, because obviously it's edited. Uh, and it's going to be a really good experience because Christian and I, I think we have a good chemistry. We went on a podcast before that I hosted with a friend of mine, and that was just complete drivel. We were t- <laughs> Entertaining drivel. Entertaining it was entertaining. Drivel. It was an hour and a half, and we called it Nukes, Clowns, and Garlic Sauce. So you can, and the, actually, interestingly, the, artwork that i made for that had john wayne gacy on it as his alter ego pogo the clown so that's a little bit of an easter egg if you will you can tell by the title how banal that hour and a half is and it really is trash but it's it's entertaining trash and i enjoyed it i mean most of the time i was getting absolutely uh roasted by bluesy so i enjoyed that and then we did the podcast (laughs) we spent a long time talking about our Best ever pizza toppings. That's yeah. the level of nonsense it got to. But anyway, we digress. That's the introduction. My friend Christian here is going to tell us about Patrick David Mackay. Over to you, good sir. Thank you very much. Before I start, I just want to say thank you very much for being given me the platform to share with you this gruesome tale. I've been following this podcast for since its creation, and I am an avid listener. And I'm, it's an absolute privilege to be on this show. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the antagonist of this story, Patrick McKay, aptly nicknamed the Devil's Disciple. So from the moment McKay was conceived, his destiny was already one of violence and neglect. Even before he was born, McKay was a victim of abuse. When he was was just a developing fetus, so hadn't even come into this world yet properly, his father who was a drunkard and still suffering from PTSD from the Vietnam War, kicked Mrs. McKay in the womb multiple times. Jesus. So, yeah, he hasn't even been born yet, and he's he's already suffering immensely. So where where, where was he born? Whereabouts in England is this birth, sorry? So that's what I'm going to come on to. Basically, he entered the world in September September the 25th, 1952, in Dartford, Kent, which is an area located... 18 miles from central London. So that's where he was brought up. He was born to Harold McKay and his wife, Marion McKay, who is a woman with Creole heritage. And interestingly, they met in Guyana. Hmm. I I don't know why. Maybe it was because I know McKay's father was a soldier. Maybe he was over there for some sort of skirmish. But yeah, they met over there in Guyana. Was his father British then? Just that you said he he was in the Vietnam War. Yes, his father was British, I believe. Yeah, and they, yeah, the the mother was of Creole heritage. So, whereas many children's upbringings are surrounded by warmth, cuddly toys, and love, McKay's was 
dominated by violence, brutality and chaos, fueled by a combination of uh, atrocities that he witnessed in Nam and a crippling alcohol addiction, Harold McKay would frequently severely beat his son for the smallest of things. Uh, at the age of 10, Harold's battered body basically gave up on him with all of the alcohol abuse. And, and I think a, a large part of it had to do with the extreme PTSD he was suffering from what he saw in the Vietnam War. He died of a heart attack on his way to work. Wow. So yeah, his, his dad died. Uh, and with his dying breath, he actually whispered to his son, who was with him at the time, remember to be good. I think it's safe to say McKay went and did the exact opposite. You can't have even misheard him because it doesn't sound like be a serial killer to me. Remember, it's not go out and wreak havoc. It's (laughs) remember to be good. So yeah, he did the polar opposite to his father's wishes. So the pain of losing his father was unbearable to McKay. And he really didn't handle it well. He entered a state of what a lot of people around him said was extreme denial. Uh, He would frequently tell family members that his father was still alive, and he even refused to attend the funeral in Scotland. So that's quite a big deal, isn't it? Not attending your dad's funeral. You're in that much denial, you think he's alive. I mean, it shows how much it's clearly affected him. How old was he when he died, sorry? Do we know? Um, I believe he was around the age of 10. Oh, yeah, so so he's obviously quite young, finding it quite hard to process. And, you know, for you've got to think, did he actually think his father was still alive? Like mentally was there, uh, or did he, was in such extreme denial he didn't want to hear it? I think it's possibly a case of he just didn't, if he said it, it became real maybe? Yeah, so he just, he was living, yeah, he was living a complete lie. But to not go to your father's funeral because of that, that's a pretty big deal. That is a big deal. But from what you've said, he's not winning any Father of the Year awards. <laughs> Let's be fair. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Perhaps that. Perhaps his denial was his way of thinking, I don't want to go to his funeral, but I can't just say I don't want to go. Maybe I'll just pretend he never died. Yeah, maybe he was trying to express his anger that he could never express when his father was alive. And maybe not attending his funeral was a way of saying you were an awful dad. Could be getting the power back, for example. Form of control. This is what's interesting. This leads me on to my next point. So a few years passed and McKay started to get into adolescence and he started to get a bit bigger. And he was at home with um, his sister and his two, sorry, his mother and his two sisters. And McKay actually began to pay homage to Harold by picking up the father figure role of dealing out brutal beatings to a mother and sister. So that kind of, it's almost systemic. He's learned that as a kid. He got beaten by his dad. And I know with a lot of serial killers, you see later on in life, they start taking out, you know, what happened to them as a child. They start taking that on their victims. However, it's interesting that this individual at maybe 13, 14, picked it up so quickly. He started beating his sisters and mum within a few years of his father dying. That is bizarre. You always think, and you can't really put yourself in that situation unless you've been there, but if you've been abused brutally, yeah. that you would think, I don't want to inflict that on anyone. But I think it's shocking how many people just repeat that pattern of behaviour on their kids, for example. I know almost 
80%, close to 80% of paedophiles were sexually abused as children. It's very rare for paedophilia in paedophilia that uh, a man or a woman randomly sexually abuses a child. Very rare. Most of them had been subjected by sexual abu- to sexual abuse by some sort of uh, old, older figure. Yeah. So I think it's similar for serial killers, you know. So basically, in a, in a desperate attempt to change her son's quite growingly savage ways, Marion McKay decided to relocate to Gravesend, which is another little town in the county of Kent. So we're still in Kent. But unfortunately, the beatings did not stop and they actually intensified. And the McKay family household was plunged into a kind of shadow of misery. At its peak, the police were called to the family home as often as four times a week. Jesus. So, really, yeah, four times a week. I mean, that's got to be, yeah, the police have got to start having alarm bells, surely, by this point. Is this in, like, what decades? this, the 70s? At the moment, this is, we're looking uh, early 60s. Okay, okay. 60s to mid-60s, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, between, it's between the ages of 12 and 22. Okay. So, between the ages of 12 and 22, McKay was actually removed from the Ham family home on 18 separate occasions. 18. So each time he was carted off to various specialist schools, institutions, and prisons. So they, they were always to somewhere really drastic. They weren't like to like a borstal. Right, okay. For, for your American listeners, how would you describe a, 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 a borstal, Bluesy? Well, my understanding of a borstal is essentially... A prison for kids, right? Am I getting that right or wrong? Yeah, I think it's where kids in a secondary school, they can no longer be dis- disciplined by teachers, so they have to go somewhere where it's a bit more militant. So yeah, he's getting sent, he was getting sent off to places such as borstals, institutions, and prisons. But each time, he returned to the family home and just wreaked complete havoc on the helpless family. So he's clearly not, well, he's not learning his lesson, but also the quote-unquote justice system is is failing that family. Yeah, this is a period, 10 years of his life, between 12 and 22. And each time, imagine what it would be like for the mother and the sister. He must have been a big guy. Were his sisters younger than him or were they older than him? No, his sisters were younger. Right. And he took all three of them on. And imagine what it was like for the women of the McKay household. Every time he comes out of one of these institutes, they're just completely terrified of what the next beatings are going to be like. Wow. Because you've got to think as well, the more he's exposed to these places with all these other prisoners or Borstal residents, whatever you want to call it, he's probably going to be thinking of, he's been exposed to more devious ways, more brutal ways of attacking people and beating people up. He's not experienced that before he goes to these places. Absolutely. And, you know, these places are going to be trying to help him But I think actually what you're saying there is really important because he probably took more negativity away from these places than he did positivity. He probably, probably, it was probably more damaging for him, I would probably assume. Yeah. Because he's come back and it's even worse. And it's worth noting at this point, now get this, this is crazy. Both a police officer and a teacher that he encountered in this 10 years predicted, quote, he will go on to kill. Jeez. So that's recorded. A police officer and a teacher said, they imagine coming across and said, that boy is a wrong one. He will go, <laughs> he will, he will go on to kill. Mark my words. That's like, 
the prophecy you don't want to come true. Exactly. And obviously, these statements weren't taken seriously. Or, Frank, maybe the people that the police officer and the teacher told simply didn't care. And it's quite chilling to think that if somebody had listened to these individuals, the lives of many innocent people would have been spared. It's so crazy. You know what it's like off the cuff. You'll say, oh, I'll kill him. I'll kill her. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And people think, oh, you know, because in that context, you think, oh, they're just frustrated. Yeah. Well, if, if the, you know, it depends. There's a difference between saying, I'm going to kill him if he does that again, and saying, officer, I'd like to make a statement that that young man there will kill, and that, and that not being taken seriously. There's a bit of a difference. And then a man of the law, a police officer saying, imagine sat at your lunch break saying, Mark my word, he'll kill someone. Oh, don't worry about the Terry. He's always saying that. Ted, yeah. He's a police officer. Surely that should have had some credence. Yeah, I think it's just, a, unfortunately, it's a case of, of its time. So during these, during these tumultuous years spent in these mental institutes, staff observed that McKay took great enjoyment from torturing animals. Uh, he would catch birds, pin them to the road, and watch as cars ran over them. He would also build a bonfire in his back garden, and he threw the family pet tortoise on it. He's come back from an institute, and they've oh, we just got a new tortoise. And then the next day, you hear, I mean, imagine the, sh- imagine the delight he felt as he heard its shell crack under the flames. <laughs> God's sake. The poor thing will have gone inside its shell for protection and it had just been cooked. That's awful. How did he catch the birds is what I'm thinking. I mean, that, that information I couldn't find out. but It's notoriously not, hard to catch birds. You are right. It's not easy to catch a bird. So he's got to be a smart kid. Oh, God. And then he, how did he pin them to the road? I, they're getting far too graphic. This is just how my mind works. Did he duct tape them? Did he? I reckon someone like Kim would have stuck nails through them. Oh, why did you say that? Why did I ask? Why did I ask? Well, you asked, and there's the imagery for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. So his behavior began to deteriorate even more as he grew older. Uh, he was volatile, irascible, and known for bouts of extreme anger. Uh, attacking a young child that lived in the neighborhood, attempting to kill his own auntie and mother, and trying to set fire to a Catholic church were just a few of the sinister acts which led him to being diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. No shit. Yeah, I, I, I can't add to that. I think that's a pretty, a, a, yeah, no shit. I mean, he, I think attempting to kill his auntie and mother alone, but then trying to set fire to a Catholic church. But you know what, what is even more messed up about, about that is that based on what you've told me about this kid, and he is a kid at this, t- at this point. Yes, he is. He attempted to kill his auntie and mother. It sounds like he's more than capable of getting the job done. Yes. So did he actually want to kill them? That's a good point. Did he want to kill them or did he want to put the fear of God in them? The latter for me. Well, he certainly wanted to put the fear of God in the Catholic Church. (laughs) (laughs) So so after he's diagnosed with this psychotic disorder, a prominent psychiatrist at the time by the name of Dr. Leonard Carr actually predicted, and this is another prediction which blows my mind, predicted that McKay would grow up into a cold, psychopathic killer. And that is a direct quote. I haven't written that. So we've got a psychiatrist, prominent psychiatrist, coming in and saying that. This isn't like, oh, I feel lucky. I might win the lottery next week. (laughs) 
Uh, I reckon, you know, leads are going to be whoever. This is, yeah. see that boy over there? Yeah. I reckon. My money's on him becoming a fucking serial killer and a psychotic one at that. And there's bluesy southern accent coming out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. This is this is a psychiatrist whose job is to look at, you know, if someone, look at someone's mental instabilities. And he's saying this man is going to be, quote, a cold psychopathic killer. Consequently, in October 1968, at the age of 16, McKay was committed to Moss Side Hospital in Liverpool. Sounds rough. Yeah, he was in there. And his prediction, Mr. Leonard Carr's prediction, was obviously ignored because he was released four years later. Oh, good God. How many chances do you need with these people? I'm sure you and the listeners can see where this is going. So as a young man, McKay developed an unhealthy fascination with Nazism. And I've just thought to myself, is there such a thing as a healthy fascination with Nazism? Not really. I'm going to say no. Good. It's strange because Ian Brady was a big Nazi lover as well. He was into his National Socialism. He was, yeah. And he got Myra Hindley into it. So it's strange that it's almost as if... These people think, right, let me get... Um, obviously, back in them days, Wikipedia wasn't a thing. They go, right, top 10 list of bad books. And it's like, yeah. uh, however many days of Sodom, whatever it's called, yeah. um, by Marquis de Sade, uh, Mein Kampf. <laughs> Who's that by? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. That's foreign. It's got to be good. Subtitled. Yeah. And you know that they only do it because of how much of the shock factor it is. It's- exactly. That's exactly what it is. But, but do you not think... I think inside every one of us, there is a sick fascination and a curiosity, which is why we like true crime so much. With these books, like I would never be at all interested in reading Mind Bloody Camp. Like, why would you be? It's ridiculous. But there's part of you that thinks, I wonder what the content actually is. Do you know what I mean? It is the exact same principle as you and I talking and researching serial killers. We do it because I believe humans, most humans, not all, humans have a natural inclination to enjoy exploring morbid things. And that could be genocide, that could be serial killers, that could be natural disasters, that could be famine. But it doesn't mean that you revel in it and enjoy it. It just means that something in your brain is fascinated by how could a human do that? How could a human put millions of Jews into a camp and gas them. We have the off switch, luckily, which the majority of people in the world do. Some people, for whatever reason, whether it's through choice, whether it's through nurture, whatever the reason, some people have the imbalanced dopamine levels in the brain or whatever it is, that off button doesn't exist. And they think, I wonder what that would be like. There's only one way to find out. And that's why you get people like McKay. So McKay became so obsessed with Nazism, he often referred to himself as Franklin Bolvolt I and filled his flat with Nazi memorabilia such as swastikas and graphic images of concentration camps. So he was also abusing drugs heavily and alcohol at the time. time. Uh, and in 1973, just a stone throw away from his mother's cottage in Kent, McKay befriended a clergyman by the name of Father Anthony Crean. So McKay christened, all pun intended, their friendship 
by breaking into his house and stealing a cheque for £30, which would amount to around £365 today. Unfortunately, Father Crean's brush with evil does not end there. So if you remember that priest's name, as I will divulge his fate later on in this story. But for now... Father Crean. Father Crean, yeah. Okay. So arrested and prosecuted by the police, McKay was ordered to pay back the fine. But of course, he never did. And he never served jail time for it. Frustrated by these events, McKay then moved back into London. It was around this time McKay claimed, so upon later on in the story, McKay claims that he drowned a tramp in the river. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term tramp, it is a derogatory term used for a homeless person. But that's what McKay said. He said he drowned a tramp during that stint of his life. However, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest there is any truth whatsoever in these claims. So his first murder is actually unsubstantiated. So it's as if he wanted to start building up that notoriety of being the actual killer. Do you know what it it kind of is? It almost links back to his denial of his father's death. It's as if, if I pretend he's not dead, to me he's not dead. This is like, if I keep saying I've killed someone and keep saying I've killed someone, even though I haven't, Yeah. To me, I have killed someone. I am a killer already. So you think even even if, for let's say he didn't kill that homeless person, mm. in his head, he may feel like he's already there. He's at the stage where he's done it. Do you know what else I'm thinking as well? Obviously, I've never killed anyone, but I imagine that first kill is probably quite difficult, nerve-wracking yep. for most people. So if in his head he's already killed someone, maybe his actual first kill isn't as scary does that make sense what i'm saying i think you're absolutely right because i have definitely read there's a book a fantastic book called an interview with a serial killer and it's about a gentleman who goes around america interviewing serial killers can't precisely remember what the author's name was but in one of the he was talking to a killer about their first kill and he said exactly what you said he said a lot of people that kill someone, especially serial killers, their first kill can be not only messy, but really upsetting. And really, like, they can still... I know that you've got this idea of a stone, you know, stone-cold serial killer who feels no emotion. But I think it's actually that emotion that charges them up to do the next one. Yeah, I think it is. I'm just looking here. It wasn't... Was it... um... There was a film called, what was it called? Interview with a Serial Killer. I think that, yeah. No, Talking with Serial Killers. Oh, Talking with Serial Talking Killers. Talking with Serial Killers, yeah. And it's, uh, I'd recommend it to any of you true crime fans. It's a gentleman who went around America interviewing some really brutal men and women. Christopher Berry D. That is the exact one. He's done two volumes. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'd recommend it. Huh. We'll have to add that one to... Uh... To the list, dear listeners. If anyone's read it, please let me know. It sounds really good. It's fascinating. I think that's probably part of it because you can imagine riling yourself up for that first kill. And like you say, you're going to be inexperienced. It's going to be messy. But if you've got this element of control in your head thinking, I've already killed someone. This is how I did it. This is what happened. Even if it never did in the real world, when it comes to, in your head, the second killing, but in the real time, the first killing, you've kind of already got, this is how messed up the mind is. You've actually got experience of doing that already, even though you haven't. 
Yeah, and whether he killed this person or not, I truly believe that McKay, this was his entrance into a, a murderous spree. Mm. So McKay's unsatiable appetite for violence was only just beginning. And over a period of two years, he committed a spat of frenzied and frankly quite grisly murders. So on July the 9th, 1973, Heidi Millick, a 17-year-old German au pair girl, was travelling across London. Uh, McKay stabbed her to death and threw her body onto the tracks between London Bridge and New Cross Station in south-east London. The same month, Mary Hines was beaten to death in her Kentish Town apartment. She'd been bludgeoned with a piece of wood and left with a rolled-up stocking in her mouth. God. So one, what's quite interesting is a lot of murderers have an MO, don't they? And McKay, he's done one very publicly. To stab a woman to death on a London, on a, not, it's not underground, on a London railway track, I think it's quite open and quite public. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because there's some people like Peter Sutcliffe, for example, the Yorkshire Ripper, he would actually leave his victims' bodies out in the open. And if they weren't spotted, he would actually go back and drag them nearer to the road to be spotted. Because what he wanted the fame of it. He wanted the notoriety, yeah. So if he wasn't in the paper for a while, he would kill again to get back in the paper. That was how his ego worked. So maybe McKay's channeling that same kind of energy. Possibly. But what's bizarre is then to break into a flat. Yeah, that's that's quite secretive. That's quite covert. To go from stabbing someone outside and leaving them on a train track in the middle of London yep. to breaking into someone's house and beating them to death, completely different MO, and then leaving them with stocking in the mouth. He left a stocking, with, he left a stocking in her mouth. And then in the next year, we're, we're now at January the 12th, 1974, a lady named Stephanie Britton and her four-year-old grandson were stabbed to death in Hadley Green in Hertfordshire. Now, what's really interesting is later on, McKay actually took ownership for these crimes. But then, actually, when questioned in court, completely and utterly disregarded them. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Just the, the lady and her grandson? Yes. So right. upon arrest, he said this happened. But later on in court, he completely said it never happened and did a, a 180. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he claimed to have tossed an aging homeless man to his death from Hungerford Bridge. However, the police actually searched the area where he was supposed to have tossed this homeless man and no body was ever found. It's almost a little bit of a... Because if you're going to make up that you've killed someone, yeah, you would pick someone like a homeless person who is probably off-grid, doesn't have any family most likely, wouldn't be missed, and yeah. would be impossible to trace. Absolutely. So it sounds like he's kind of making these up to elevate his numbers. I think there is an element of that. There's an element of sensationalism. Mm. It, yeah, and you're right. Who's going to track a homeless person? A lot of them, unfortunately, don't have those connections to family or to 
you know, the rest, it's, it, they're not easy to track. So maybe to say, oh, I killed this homeless, because that's, you've got to remember, that's the second homeless person he's claimed to have killed with no evidence. Yeah. So on February 26th, 1974, the next month after he made these claims, police discovered the body of an elderly lady, Isabella Griffiths. The door to her home had been forced open and she had been strangled. She had been repeatedly struck with a heavy instrument and had been dead for 12 days before discovery. The murderer had placed the body in the kitchen, covered it up, closed her eyes, and then stabbed her through the chest, pinning her body to the floor. Police found evidence that the murderer had also hung around in the house for a substantial period of time, listening to the radio. Good God. How big was the goddamn knife? I mean, that's a very good question. To, to I know that's, that's not where you, your mind is. It's where my <laughs> mind goes. Yeah, you've got to think. And how much force must you use to... Pin... See, I thought you were going to say when he shut her eyes, he then stabbed her through the eyes. No, he stabbed her through the chest and pinned her to the floor. Good God. But how disturbing that... Again, and think about it. If this is a floor that's what? Linoleum or whatever. It's, yeah. If it's in the kitchen... In the UK, anyway, it's, it's never carpeted. It's normally hard floor. Yeah. This is a strong geezer. He's strong, and what's disturbing is he is probably in a murderous rage. Because even a strong man, to force a knife for a human's chest and then pin them to the floor, I think it shows is what mentally... Because, like, there's... you got to, you know, if we're talking upper chest, yeah. you got a ribcage there. I know, yeah. And then it's got to come out the, the back job of that well. is to stop things coming through. And you got to go, th- yeah, the front and back. And there's organs in there. And then you've got, you got all the blood. I assume she was already dead when he did this, right? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. So he strangled her and then struck her with a heavy instrument. So he killed her, strangled her, killed her, then started beating her. And then stabbed her through the chest. Jesus. Pinned her to the floor. And what I find really chilling is that he hung around in the house for a substantial period of time listening to radio. So by this point, McKay is so comfortable murdering and so comfortable doing something so heinous that he he wants to sit there and almost bask in his deed. And I think that is just chilling. What I'm thinking, though, is if he's in a murderous rage, okay, that is... To strangle someone, then repeatedly beat them with a blunt instrument, then stab them through to the floor. That's quite a sustained period of rage. Yeah. But the fact that he stays there for a while with the radio on, to me, doesn't imply murderous rage. That implies calm, content, comfortable. You know, it's it's like he's so in his element. Which is even more chilling, I suppose. It is. I think that is more chilling. That if he's doing all that and he's not even in a murderous rage. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, he's got to be quite self-composed to to commit such a horrible act and then sit there and just listen to the radio and relax. Maybe you're right. Maybe a murderous rage, someone would have smashed the house up maybe or, you know. You wouldn't calmly turn the radio on to, you know, classic FM, for example. And you'll notice it wasn't actually a frenzied attack. The frenzied part was him stabbing the corpse he strangled her which i wouldn't call you right would go with our mo of a murderous rage 
But it's also interesting that he shut the eyes. It's as if he didn't want her to see him, which is weird. He closed her eyes and stabbed her through the chest. That's so. I mean, has this man? This is what I don't understand. There's so many conflictions. He's not. He doesn't seem like your typical cold-blooded serial killer who feels no empathy. Why did he close her eyes? What did he not want her corpse to see? Hmm. Well, this brings me on to my next point, because it, by early 1974, McKay was living with friends in Finchley, North London, and he actually declared himself possessed by demons. So okay. his friends eventually kicked McKay out for his strange activities. I don't know what, Understandably. The, strange, I don't know what the strange activities were, but I can imagine him, you know, with voodoo dolls, doing all sorts of satanic rituals in the living room while they're trying to watch Coronation Street. <laughs> it doesn't really go well, does it? Let's be honest. No. So they kicked him out, um, and McKay, as uh, revenge, tried to rob the house but failed miserably. Now, I think the housemates got off lightly considering his past endeavours. Yeah, but, hmm. So has, apart from the fake homeless people that we think are fake, has he killed any men, though? No, he hasn't. He's only killed a child. Yeah, a, grand, a grandson. Okay, so... Or adult females, basically. Yes. So maybe he's maybe he sees in other adult men his dad in a weird way. So he kind of doesn't feel he could take on men. Hence, he's going for more vulnerable victims. It's without a shadow of a doubt you could call him cowardly because he attacks elderly women and children. I think you're right. He doesn't. He doesn't want to face a fully grown man. Yeah. So maybe that is exactly it. Maybe the friends he was living with in Finchley were predominantly men. And as a result, if it was an elderly woman, I guarantee he would have killed her. Because it's friends, maybe they were the same age, he thought, okay, I'll just try and rob them. But the robbery failed because he got caught and arrested. (laughs) So he got caught and arrested. And this is what's so uh, preposterous. Gets arrested for that. (laughs) This is what I was going to say. He he got a six-month jail sentence, and by this time he had killed multiple people. And he was sitting in a cell for six months with five murders at this point under his belt. And an attempted robbery got him in prison. Yes. So the police were completely clueless at this point and thought it was just he was just a petty criminal doing robberies. So in autumn that year, he was released and he turned to a life of basically doing purse snatching, mugging, petty theft, all targeting elderly women. And you know, uh, particularly in our society, the idea of purse snatching of an elderly woman is considered quite cowardly, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So he has no morals, this guy. He doesn't live by any ethical, you know, code whatsoever. So after a while, the petty theft clearly didn't satisfy his sadistic urges. So he reverted back to his murderous ways. In Finsbury Park, which is located in north east London, McKay bludgeoned to death a 62-year-old tobacconist with a piece of lead piping. Uh, the identity of the victim was never released to the public. But around the same time, uh, a lady named Sarah Rodwell, at the age of 92, was beaten to death on her doorstep in Hackney and get this, robbed of her £10 Christmas bonus. Oh, for fuck's sake. He's not doing it for the money, though, is he? No. Let's be honest. He, he... 
So he beat he, he beats a ninety two year old woman on her doorstep, bludgeons her to death. This guy is a real coward, real coward, and he only goes for the vulnerable and the elderly. That's he's a rotter. He's a rotter. He's rotten to the core. So days after, Ivy Davies, forty eight. So she's she's not as old, but still uh, female, living at home by herself. And this one's particularly brutal. So brace yourself. She was found butchered and bloody in her home in Westcliff-on-Sea, which is in Essex. Using an axe, McKay completely ripped apart one side of her body. So literally sliced through half of her body. And after murdering her, he undressed Davies, put her in a nightdress, positioned her in the bed, and then turned on TV. I mean... I kind of, kind of lost for words. I'm not sure what to say at this point. For the listeners, you've got a picture. This woman... It's a nervous laugh. This woman has been torn to shreds and is completely unrecognisable. And he is capable to go through her wardrobe, find a nightdress, and dress her up. This guy has... How can you even begin to... Like, if you... Like, for example, your mum's a psychotherapist. Yeah. And a bloody good one. Why, thank you. How would you... <laughs> Patrick McKay comes in. Hi, Julie. This is what the crack is with my life. How the fuck do you go about even beginning... Ju- beginning to process just that one murder? Yeah. Never mind the rest. Yeah. I'm thinking of the mess in the bed, blood everywhere how awkward it would be to put her in the dress. He's just butchered her. There are so many serious mental problems. You're right. There's so many issues. It's not just you're a murderer. He's obviously got some real issues with his childhood. Without a shadow of a doubt. It is systemic. It has to be. It was his childhood that turned him into this, but he's got issue upon issue. I think he must have, whether it's from the kicks in the womb or whatever, he has to have some form of an underdeveloped brain, whether that's emotionally or or literally, like maybe he's not developed some whatever's going on in the gray matter. Yeah. Some form of development has been skipped there. For a human to be able to do that to any human, I think I think it's a push to say it's just childhood trauma. I agree with you. I think there's something seriously wrong with his brain. Because to be able to do that to a woman, and it's the, the callousness of it, to be able to dress up a bloodied corpse and then sit there and watch TV. It's, it's hard because the, the human brain is so complex and it makes every single thing that you do throughout the day, whether that's blinking or wiggling your little toe without knowing it, your brain's telling you to do that. It really is, you know, it's your computer. That's nothing new. But... I can't understand with these people because you think, oh, serial killer is a bastard, is a knobhead, blah, 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 which absolutely 100%. But then the the empathetic side, which most humans are empathetic, yep. you've got to think, why is that the case? Why has that happened? Could it be helped? Could it have been helped? Because you've got to think right and wrong. He will know that while he's doing that, it's wrong. Yeah. Because other, otherwise he wouldn't have denied the murders in court. Absolutely. So in that sense, there's no sympathy for the guy. But you've got to still think in some way 
I don't want to say this poor guy because he's not a poor guy. He's an absolute monster. But for, from childhood, and it, one doesn't justify the other. Going through a brutal childhood doesn't justify you brutalizing people. But this again, that very human, caring side that most people have. You've part of you thinks, what if he'd have had a good childhood? Would this have been a fully functioning member of society, or would he still have had little switches missed? Maybe he just wouldn't have been as brutal. And at this stage, is he such a product of his upbringing that he's not even uh, the in, he, you can't even consider him as a fully functioning individual? Can you consider him as as uh, someone who's in control of his own actions, or is he being is he being basically propelled through life by extreme trauma and possibly a genetic malfunction, possibly because he got booted in the brain? So it doesn't excuse his actions, absolutely not. But it's fascinating to think, if things were different, would he have still done this? Do you believe then on that same context, do you believe that rehabilitation of people like this is possible? Or do you think it's a lost cause? That comes on to sort of sub point is, if it isn't doable, I suppose, if it's a lost cause, is the death penalty the right thing to do? Or should they suffer in prison? Are they suffering in prison? This is how complicated this discussion can get. I put something on Twitter the other week, which was, do you believe in the death penalty? 80% of people said no, and 20% said yes. And there's arguments both ways. Yeah. Personally, I think I'm not exactly for it. It's hard to say if someone did something to your family, you probably would want them dead. But then you've got to think as soon as they die you're still living with that trauma for the rest of your life and they, they've got no worries, they're dead. But if they're rotting in prison, it's a difficult discussion. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think my stance on it is I think a lot of people can be rehabilitated. But with this particular individual, I think when you commit such horrific, heinous crimes, I think you lose a part of your humanity something inside you to butcher a woman, cut up her corpse, dress her up, bludgeon a corpse to death. I think you will lose an element or an essence of what makes you human. And I do not believe those individuals can be rehabilitated and put back into society. So unfortunately, with somebody who does such horrific things, they need to be locked up for the rest of their life. I don't believe they should be killed. I don't feel we have the right to take anyone else's life. I do not agree with the death penalty at all in any any situation. Uh, but I don't think they should be allowed back in society. I think that's it. Throw away the key, unfortunately. I agree. I'll move on to, uh, we'll continue. So by March 1975, McKay had lost complete control. His ravenous desire to murder and mutilate was inexhaustible. Targeting another old lady... McKay strangled Adele Price in her North London flat. And then just 11 days later, he decided to seek revenge on poor Father Crean. Mm-hmm. Remember the name? So yeah. the priest who he befriended earlier on in this story um, and stole £30 off, uh, unfortunately for Father Crean... Why does the revenge aspect I know. come into this? <laughs> He's a bloody good guy. I'll get him. Yeah, because I don't know why. I think it's because he got prosecuted for it, even though he didn't serve jail time. So it's almost like he did a full circle. And remember, Father Korean lived just down the road from his mum. So 
Uh, unfortunately for Father Korean, McKay had a very good memory and a very murderous memory. And on March the 21st, 1975, then aged 22. So our antagonist is very young at this stage. He's 22 years old. These murders have happened over a few years. Uh, McKay snuck into Father Korean's cottage and using a hand axe, he hacked through the Father Korean's skull and watched him bleed to death. His body was found floating in a bathtub full of bloody water. Thankfully, these heinous acts would be McKay's last. During the early stages of an investigation of Father Crim's murder, Patrick McKay was already a main suspect. Stupidly, on his way to Father Crim's cottage, he had left his name and address at a train station after asking for the train times back to London. He had also spoken to a local police officer walking through the village just moments after leaving Father Crean's mutilated corpse in the bathtub. So perhaps the way I see it is these two acts uh, were maybe an act of arrogance, telling the world he could never be caught because he's just murdered this, uh, this vicar. And then he's gone over and told and had a chat with two police officers. I'm sure it was just, how you doing? How's your day? But I think that was a real act of defiance, if you ask me. I think he, maybe this is too smart for him, but I think he might have been trying to prepare some form of an alibi. So it can't have been me. I was at the train, check the train station. His name's there. Yeah. Obviously, the, t- the timings don't add up. No. You know, the officer, I spoke to the officer. Yeah, he did, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's what he was thinking, but he just didn't quite think it all the way through. Yeah, see, I, I looked at it a different way. I thought it was a, a way of he's killed, you know, numerous people and he is really quite arrogant and he thinks I can do whatever I want. Do you know what? There's two police officers walking down there. I'll go and say hello to him. That's how arrogant I am. No one can catch me. Or, coming back to the Peter Sutcliffe thing, maybe he was annoyed that he's killing all these people and he's getting no notoriety for it. Yeah, I think that could be it. Yeah, I think that could be very, yeah, very, that could be an obvious choice. I mean, so next, two officers were instructed to find McKay before he hunted down his next victim. The one vital lead they had is that McKay is known frequently to visit another priest in London. After making contact with this priest, officers discovered that McKay had been living out of a hostel in Lewisham, an area in southeast London. After conducting a thorough search of Kay's room, officers discovered pictures of Hitler, Nazi uniforms, and a hoard of valuable jewellery. The police ascertained that the stolen jewellery had basically come from a series of burglaries that had, been conti- uh, that had been committed in the Chelsea area within the last few years. The next morning, after receiving a tip-off from the hostel manager, police stormed a flat in Stockwell, South London. Reticent and calm, McKay was sat on top of the bed when police officers came in and he simply complained about a hangover. That's all he said. Go easy with me, officers. I've got a bit of a hangover. He claimed that the money he'd gained from pawning stone and jewellery, he had spent on a booze and drug binge that lasted 24 hours. So that it's almost like he knew it was going to happen. He he just he blew all his money and went on a mad one, and got completely hammered. 
it's almost like wanted he's the, end for the to police come. to come. Yeah. Yeah, like he's he's left his name. He's spoke to the officers. He knows it's coming. I'll spend all my money and I'll have a good time. Yeah, completely premeditated. So on his arrest, McKay immediately admitted to murdering Father Crean straight off the bat. He said, "Yeah, I did it." He claimed that a white mist. Uh, that's a direct quote. A white mist had come over him and triggered a fit of murderous rage. On the journey back to the police station in, in Gravesend in Kent, he directed police to a garage near Clapham where he confessed to dumping the murder weapons. So during the police investigations, uh, interrogations, McKay described the murder in quite disturbingly vivid and immensely gruesome detail. And there's actually a police note that McKay became visibly excited, reliving the murder step by step, step by step, and that the sight of all that blood was so stimulating that he stood over Father Creon's corpse for an hour watching it float in the bathtub. So McKay was subsequently charged and held at Brixton Prison awaiting trial. Police, suspecting McKay to be the suspect in, a list, in at least a dozen murders over the past two years. So now the police are starting to clock on thinking, wait a minute, all of these elderly women that have been murdered and, uh, in, in such vicious ways, he must be our guy. Uh, they knew most of the victims were elderly women who had either been robbed, strangled, or stabbed. They also knew he had committed countless robberies, some of them actually resulting in murder. Of these crimes, through lack of concrete evidence, police eventually de- decided to charge McKay with five counts of murder. So out of, out of 11 crimes, 11 murders, they could only charge him with five. Yeah? Yeah. So on November the 21st, 1975, Patrick McKay entered the courtroom at the Old Bailey, which is the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales. Due to a lack of substantial evidence, two of the five murder charges were dropped. So it's now gone down to three. From 11. From 11. During the trial, McKay's lawyer actually tried to argue that McKay was clinically insane, which would result to him being sent to a mental facility rather than a prison. However, it was decided that McKay was suffering from psychopathy, which at the time was a disorder from which there was no treatment for. Consequently, he was charged with three counts counts of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility and sentenced to a whole life tariff. Now, for your listeners, in the UK, diminished responsibility is a defence to murder. It basically is used when the defendant has successfully proven that they were suffering an abnormality of the mind during the time the crimes were committed. Thus, the conviction is lowered from murder to manslaughter. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you got away with that one, Blues. Basically a plea of insanity, isn't it, in in layman's terms? Yeah. That is, I mean, I can kind of see that he is pretty insane. Yeah. But I think he still has enough cognitive thought to probably not be clinically insane. Yeah, I agree. Well, he, do you know what? He's still got a whole life tariff. And I've heard your show enough that I know your listeners know what a whole life tariff is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still imprisoned 46 years on. And McKay is among the 50 or so prisoners in the UK to have been sentenced to a whole life tariff and are likely to be ever released from prison. Uh, after spending a period in open prison, McKay 
is was currently being considered for release. However, McKay in June 2020, his parole board hearing was postponed as a result of a fresh investigation into his involvement into the string of unsolved murders. Oh, okay. So he served so many years in prison now, they're thinking, you know, he's been in there for 46 years, let's give him an opportunity to see if he can come out. But now they've reopened the investigation to him. 46 Hmm. years on. And to finish off this story, I will give you a direct quote from the man himself. When asked about his motive for the murders, Patrick McKay gave the reporter a deadpan gaze and simply said, any man doing a killing enjoys it. It is an animal experience. Wow. See, I had it in my head that he was dead for some reason, but again, that's just how naive I am to the case. That's so he's literally been in prison since the seventies. Yeah, forty-six years behind bars. And which, which prison's he at? Sorry. Um, to be honest with you, yeah, I looked for where he was incarcerated, but for some reason, it didn't say. It doesn't always say. To be honest, sometimes they keep it a bit of a secret. I guess that's kind of understandable. Yeah, I imagine some people, if they wanted to comment on this, a lot of people on YouTube seem to know where these prisoners hang out. Okay, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe one of your listeners will be able to enlighten us. Hopefully, I mean, not that I'm going to do anything. I'm not going to visit him. You know what I mean? <laughs> but if anyone knows, you're not going to become his new pen pal. Probably not. No, but if anyone does know where Patrick McKay, you call him McKay, I would have called him Mackay as I did at the start, but. I'm sure it's... I wouldn't want to get it wrong in his presence, is the only thing. Absolutely not, especially if he's got any knives handy. Yeah, so yeah. That was... um, (laughs) That was more disturbing than I expected, to be honest. That's one of the worst stories I've ever heard. I'm glad, and I hope you have nightmares tonight. Cheers for that, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. I'll be honest, I thought you told it really well. You've got... um, He's got the voice and the charisma. You'll be, you'll be Nick, the fellow that nicked my job, Christian. Well, you never know. I might make a, uh, I might make a true crime podcast and call it uh, British Murders Part Two. Wow, that's uh, plagiarism. <laughs> but no, I thought, I thought you did. Uh, can, I, can we just confirm for the listeners? Because when he came on my old show and he was talking about serial killers, he literally read from Wikipedia. Can we please confirm that you didn't just read Wikipedia from start I to finish? I can confirm all of that was my own words, and <laughs> I won't have that kind of slander. <laughs> I thought you told it great. That was um, a very, very disturbing story. Very disturbing. Good God. Thank you for having me on the show, and I hope all of your listeners are as repulsed and disturbed as you. Thank you. Thank you. So just before we sign off now, Christian and I have been speaking recently because where Christian currently lives for now is very close to Shrewsbury Prison, which is a now closed prison. And they do sort of tours there. Yep. Tours, tours, however you want to say it, where you can go around and visit the cells and see all the execution room they did a lot of executions back in the 1800s they would hang them back in the day they used to hang people and kill them in the jails and and they would bury them at the jails as well quite often so this prison does tours where you can enter at eight o'clock in the evening and you can stay overnight and it's supposed to be well haunted it's one of the most haunted prisons in the uk and it is on the top 10 dark tourism spots in the world and we think it would be great if we, I don't know how at this point, but in the summer, maybe we video it, maybe we do a podcast on it, maybe we record while we're there, take some pictures, 
I think it'd be a great experience. So, so that could be something you have to look forward to. But to be honest, I've really enjoyed this. I hope your listeners have as well. I would love to have you back on again. Thank you very much. Uh, in a few months' time, tell me another story that I've not heard. I think that would be fantastic. Absolutely. But for now, I think we'll leave it there, unless you've got anything further you'd like to... No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You're more than welcome. So that was the show, and I don't know where this is going to be placed within the format of the show. Maybe season three will start next week. Maybe it'll be the week after. Whatever. We'll find out. I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.